Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Feeling lucky? Nemecolon's Lady Luck Casino is under new management and better than ever with 26 table games and an array of slot machines for you to test your luck. Try your luck at the table games, hit the slots for the day, or stay overnight to enjoy Nema Cullen's luxury accommodations, fine dining, and all that the casino has to offer in one breathtaking mountain location. Visit nemacolon.com for more information and to reserve your stay. Lady Luck is open to the public. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, and welcome to The Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew Pierce, and this podcast is recorded in Bulu, Perth. I pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging sovereignty never ceded. On this episode, I talk with the co-directors Indiana Bell and Josiah Allen about their first feature film, You'll Never Find Me. Building on their impressive short film work with Call Connect and The Recordist, You'll Never Find Me sees a visitor, played by Jordan Cowan, who knocks on the door of Patrick, played by Brendan Rock. She's lost and it's pouring outside, and she's in the middle of nowhere, and his caravan is the only source of sanctuary that she could find. Or is it? What follows is a twisting, turning tarot character piece where two figures push and probe each other trying to figure out just who the other is. It's a double-hander that plays a lot like a card game, with bluffing, truth-revealing, and an ultimate tension playing out. I've long been a fan of what Indiana and Josiah have managed to do with their filmmaking brilliance in South Australia. Core Connect is a short film that easily stands as one of the most riveting and powerful shorts I've ever seen, and the recordist is no different. The two have crafted visual style with their work that is equally amplified by sound design that creates an immersive sonic landscape that elevates the scripts that Indiana writes. If there is a future of an independent filmmaking in Australia to keep an eye out for, then it's in the heart of Adelaide with Indian Josiah's work. I really, really applaud what they're doing, and I really can't wait to see their filmmaking career go forth. You'll Never Find Me launches at the Melbourne International Film Festival on August 16th, with a second screening on the 19th of August. Head over to miff.com.au for further details and to pick up tickets. To listen to previous or read previous interviews with filmmakers whose work is screened at MIFF, then head over to thecurb.com.au. let's get started talking about You'll Never Find Me. It is a really effective film. I guess, Indy, we'll start with you. Where did the idea come from for this? Well, it was not very organic, the way that the idea for the story itself came about. Basically, we we knew that we wanted to make a a feature and we knew that um, we were going to have to be really practical in terms of what we can achieve on a low budget Mm -hmm. And um, we knew that that needed to be something that we had in mind from the script stage rather than having this great, wonderful, grand idea, writing the script for it and then trying to like rework it for a lower budget. So, you know, normally when you're writing a script, you have a conversation with someone or, you know, you listen to a piece of music or, you know, you overhear something and it kind of sparks the idea for a story. Um, This really was not that at all. It was, okay, we know we want to do something in a single location. 
And we really enjoyed working with Brendan Rock and Jordan Cowan, the two um, actors that we had made a short film with called The Recordist. Okay, what can we do with these two people? One is an older guy and one's a young woman. What kind of dynamics does that present? If you put them in a single location together, what stories come out of that? So it was kind of just about brainstorming different locations and what that would do and, you know, kind of pulling at those threads to see uh, where they would lead in terms of an interesting um, story idea. And then we kind of came to this and it was like, okay, cool. This is what we're doing. <laughs> this is, that sounds very, like it's pragmatic and it's realising what the working within limitations but i tell you what like you, you this is a massive film in one location like you've got so much going on and a lot of it comes down to cinematography obviously script and performances and direction is there but cinematography the production design and then the sound design as well so as you're saying like you have to have this idea in your mind of what you're creating at the end of it in the script level but were those aspects also baked into the script and the conception of what you're going to be creating as well? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Because we we wanted to have a script that was really uh, well thought out so that when we came to all of the, the normal hurdles that mm. are thrown at you when you get to the actual production stage that we um, could really concentrate on them rather than like reworking the script constantly and, and trying to think of new ways to reinvent it. So... <laughs> A lot of the sound design was written into the script um, because for that same reason of being really practical, we knew we wanted to do this story that was set in a, during a storm but on a really low budget. And the second that you bring in rain rigs and lightning and all that kind of stuff, um, things become really not very low budget mm. anymore. So we went, okay, in script stage, um, how can we minimise the amount that we actually see the storm um, but still uh, make it believable and make the audience really aware that there is this constant threat outside and it's still raging on, um, even though we can't see it all the time. So Yeah, sound's always been um, in our short films um, a big priority for us. And I know everyone says, oh, sound's really important, but like we are just big sound nerds. Mm. Um, it just, um, we've always, our short films have always been really small and I think that, if there's any scale to them, it we've ten, tended to get it through sound. Mm. So in designing the film, we were very much had in mind that we would be leaning very heavily on some really uh, tricksy lighting uh, with our amazing cinematographer, Max Corkendale, and then music and sound, we just went from the beginning. For the amount of time and resources we had, we put a lot into the sound duncan campbell our sound designer and uh darren lynn our um composer they just we we kind of handed them this big challenge of you know if you take away all that stuff it's very sparse you know what what we were cutting to like we were doing some sound and stuff like that as we were going as we always do we we knew that we were making something that would really rely heavily on that and they um took up the challenge and i think I think it just sounds amazing. Mm. They did so well. Well, that's what I was going to say. I find it really interesting as you're talking about the recorders and core connecting. Now, this 
how you have, you know, throughout your films, you're playing with sound and playing with the nature of how sound is presented in a film and mostly like putting us into the, the space of the characters as well. Obviously, Call Connect, we're sitting there listening to a conversation take place. The sound is not as complex, but it still puts us into the space. And then the recorders with the, the headphones and things like that, which is such a an atmospheric and powerful thing. And then this, which is just everything, which like, it feels like a natural conclusion to what you've been working towards. What draws you to telling a story on a sonic level? And where did that interest in telling a sonic story come from? I guess, it, yeah, it's kind of like twofold because on one side it's, you know, what we're talking about before in terms of like how can we achieve the feeling of scale <clears throat> on a low budget and that like sound does 90% of the work in films. Mm. Um, so, and it's something that you don't have to have 10 massive expensive rain rigs to create a storm. You just need a great sound designer to create a storm. So there's that level of it in terms of we are, you know, trying to push what we can do within the budget constraints that we have and same thing with our short films. But then there's, yeah, the creative side of it in terms of we just love sound and we love um, films that really, yeah, really use that to their advantage and kind of we always find that films are way more thrilling and terrifying when they're using sound and music as a tool Mm. over visuals. You know, it's that whole thing of, Rather than seeing the monster, I want to hear the monster and I'm going to be way more scared um, in that way because, you know, nothing is more terrifying than your imagination. So when it fills in all the gaps for you, um, it can be a really effective tool. So it's kind of twofold like that in that we just really love that um, in films and, um, yeah, and just really appreciate films that use sound like that but also just from a practical standpoint as well. Yeah. We both, both, um, I I guess learnt to lean on it not not to not to save us not to get us out of our trouble but from from early on we learned to lean on it through obviously yeah doing stuff with short films but even when we were kids you know some of our home videos it's it's like you know you, you'd experiment with with sound as a kid and, and that would be the thing that suddenly made something watchable i know like showing that she's the writer her childhood videos when you see them are they're story driven. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're amazing. You know, she's seven um, and, and it's, they're complex plots. Um, <laughs> I used to, when I was like seven, eight, nine, copy scenes. I would, I would watch a scene and I would try and achieve you know, like a fight, like mm-hmm. something action-y or something like that. And, you know, I just had little home video recorder and like a bully my my friends or family to be in it uh they're all good sports about it <clears throat> but it would always be you know unwatchable until you put uh, I, I would sometimes like rip uh which is dodgy but i was seven um i would like record actual sound from a movie mm-hmm. uh, for for the scene i was trying to copy and i would cut what i had done to that sound and suddenly it was completely watchable and it made sense to the audience to parents friends and i know that sounds funny that that was that was a really um powerful lesson that sometimes i think back on of like you know as a kid you're like oh now it works now now people understand it but that just shows that it's 50 percent of it and if you pull the sound and music out just everything it just isn't isn't immersive and no. just doesn't just doesn't flow rhythmically mm-hmm. as well so let's talk about your directing relationship how that's changed over the years with the shorts and to the features how has 
how have you found that it's it's worked with you both and you've evolved over time? Well, yeah, when we first met each other in uni and we started to do our first few shorts together, we were coming from two different strengths. Like I, I would write the scripts and I was coming from, you know, I did a little bit of like high school drama and all that kind of stuff and I really enjoyed the performance aspect of it. And, you know, when I'm writing the scripts, I can really imagine how the actors deliver the lines. So it's like I was coming from more of that um, performance side and working mm. with actor side. And then Joe was coming from a really visual side and he's the one who's really into editing and, you know, storyboarding and um, thinking about lens choices and, and all that kind of stuff. So when we'd come together, it was, you know, when we first started, it was quite separate in a way. Mm. But now as we have worked more together, we're kind of learning off of each other and just through the process of filmmaking and getting stronger in the areas that we were not perhaps as strong in so that we're kind of hopefully evening out a little bit. And it's something that we still lean on, which is really helpful when we're like in emergency situations on set and you're like running out of time and you're like, okay, I'm going to go talk to the actors. You Mm. go talk to Max and we can kind of split off and it's really efficient in that way. But, you know, as, as we're working more and more together, we, we want to become more of a a unit where we're both doing like, you know, an an even amount in both areas, um, which I think we are getting better at. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like hopefully it's not noticeable to, to an actor for instance, or or someone on set um, until, until there is a, time emergency where we do need to split off or you know um in rehearsals i tend to i i I tend to try and actually not engage as much we did rehearsals for this because so much of it is is, um play like and again it's not like i'm not there it's not like i'm not talking but i try and be a first audience member Mm -hmm. when indiana's written the script so we really try and make that purely a process of between the actors and the writer to get the writer intention before the writer gets fired by herself being a director and we we are working on now adapting that uh we we try and keep those two as as kind of a separate um process which is really fun by the time yeah by the time we get on set it really is nowadays i think most importantly about because we're looking for we still have different strengths that we know of Mm. um it really is about getting across an idea uh, as quickly as possible so if we you know watch a take and we look at each other, we can have quick discussion. We have a shorthand, obviously, at this stage. Uh, it's about just working out what we need to do to improve something or, yeah, what we want out of a scene as quickly as possible. And there's just no better way of doing it as, you know, being that audience member watching a take than being uh, just turn to someone you trust, go, what do you reckon, mm-hmm. what do you reckon? And then wh- whoever can articulate that quickest tends to take the lead and the other person kind of comes yeah. in as well, but just adds to that discussion. Yeah. So when you're working with somebody like Brendan and Jordan, who you've had a working relationship with before, how do you help them build the characters? I mean, Brendan is such a, his visual screen presence is so, he's a complex figure really on screen, both menacing, but also kind of warm and comfortable too, which is a real difficult balance. And then Jordan is you know, vulnerable, but also there's this potential for threat there. So how do you go about creating those characters with them? Well, it was, it was definitely a process. And we, we, like you said before, we did rehearsal for this because, because of the fact that it's so dialogue heavy and so play-like, we knew that it would just, it wasn't something that we could just rock up on the day and shoot. Mm. We needed to talk about it heaps. We needed to try out different 
ways of of um of going with the scenes and with the characters and we needed to develop it heaps with Brendan and Jordan mm. before we came to set so that we were really prepared um so Brendan and Jordan have both done a lot of theatre so they were into that which was really good uh yeah we just did a lot of rehearsal and a lot of chatting but the other thing is that it's it also came out in a process of the editing as well because on set we were kind of careful to get we like to get lots of takes we like to get things with like slight subtle variations so that we can really manipulate it in the edit and that's what joe was doing a lot of in the editing process of going okay what does it do if i put in this shot of of patrick brendan here you know where he's looking slightly more suspicious okay that kind of changes the whole read of Mm. this section what if I change it again? Okay, it changes the read again. So it's a lot of manipulation. So, um, yeah, in terms of of the performances, we just tried to get um, small variations, subtle variations in different takes yeah. on the day so that we had that ammo by the time we got to the edit so that we could really craft what we needed out of a scene but also change our minds in the edit and go, actually, no, this works better. Yeah. We can manipulate people more if we do it this way. So, yeah, it's a, it's it's all Brendan and Jordan's work. Um, but yeah. just uh, kind of taking that work and and messing with it in the edit as well. And it was a, it was a lot more um, than we've done in the past, purely because of the real time mm. aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. Just because it's playing out like a play, we would literally we would go with a certain set of takes, and then we would test the film, and we'd gauge people's reactions. And there were just you know a, a slight slightly different look mm. would people would remember that moment mm. and they would call back that moment and that's what threw them off in not quite the right way we had certain certain spots where we just talked about in rehearsal we're going to get we're going to get a bunch of takes of this and nothing's it's not it's not yeah as you said it's super subtle it's nothing mm. silly it's not like one time we're playing it for laughs and one time yeah. you know it's amazing it, what it's audiences amazing. Yeah. pick up on yeah. and what they can hold on to sometimes in a great way and sometimes in a way that you don't want. And um, that was something we had to test when, yeah. we were, when we were doing the edit because people can really latch onto things and it makes them reinterpret stuff that you don't want them to reinterpret. So you're like, oh, God, have to get rid of that shot, That's you right. know. It's the, it is literally that. It's the annoying lesson that we're always learning of. It's like it's, it is the behaviour in between all the moments that we're most paying attention to Yeah. that the audience latch on, yeah. latches onto yeah. as your as we as filmmakers are trying to tell them something. Yeah. Um, so always being really on on that yeah. behaviour. What I find impressive as well about you both is that you do get feedback and audience reactions prior to completing a film. And I don't know, if, I mean, it's not something I've asked all Australian filmmakers, but it doesn't seem like something that is common practice. Can you talk about that process and when you decided that that was going to be something you would add into your creative process? Yeah, I think it's it's something that was really important for, we've, we've done it previously with our shorts, but we knew with this film specifically, mm. the nature of the film and the whole cat and mouse game that kind of happens throughout it, we just knew that we needed to, to test it on people because fundamentally what happens when you're making a movie and you're doing lots of the roles yourself, like editing and everything, it, it gets to a point where you feel like you can't really see the wood for the trees and you're like, I need fresh eyes on this to tell me what, yeah. what's, because because we know 
we inherently know so well the script and the shots that we got on the day and we know the edit inside out it gets to a point where you've just looked at it looked at it so long that you cannot actually determine yeah. what is working and what's not working what information is tracking and what is just going over people's heads so you just need fresh eyes and um we knew quite early on that would be something that would be required for mm. this film just because of the nature of the story it's not really like a clear cut a b c d storyline there are lots of little clues and breadcrumbs that we want people to pick up on but that we also want to wash over people so that mm. it has rewatchability and lots of tricky stuff like that so um i think audience feedback is really valuable um and really helped us in yeah. in the editing mm -hmm. process um to find out you know where the weaknesses in the film were and yeah and that way we could go back and go okay how do we fix this we, we always knew from the beginning that we were committing to a style of film that the audience wouldn't be uh, on top of what was going on the entire time. And that was obviously on purpose. Mm. And we knew it would ruin it if everyone understood every single thing as they were going. But then the other side of that is you don't want it to annoy people. Mm. You don't want people to feel so lost that, that they turn it off mm. or stop watching it. So it was a tricky balance of we knew that we had the answers so we wanted to make sure that if someone wanted to watch it again the answers are there and we're not lying that yeah we're always keeping the audience guessing mm. um but hopefully feeling like they're on a ride where they understand enough of what's going on where it's enjoyable mm. obviously one of the pivotal scenes is a card game but the actual film itself feels like a card game can you talk about the choice of the specific card game that's played, bullshit, which is, you know, this truth and lies kind of thing. Can you choice, yeah, talk about that? Um, yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's my, my favourite scene because of the fact that it it kind of has stayed exactly what it was meant to be from from the start because it's, you know, in, in the script it was a certain way. When we did it in rehearsals it was a certain way. When we shot it was a certain way in the edit it was like the like first, first cut. The first cut of it. What's in there? It pretty much ended up being what it is. Um, so that was really cool because you know everything changes when you make mm. a film, but this little bit really didn't, which was kind of cool. But yeah, we. I knew that in at that point of the story, I needed a moment where these two characters actually sit down and face one another, and there's actually some form of truths exchanged between the two of them. You know, I thought it would be a fun way to do it with a card game and specifically with bullshit because of the fact that, you know, who who do you trust and are they telling the truth and you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of just a fun play on that. Um, and we had to make sure that you can actually play bullshit with two people. <laughs> we looked it up, you can. With two deck of cards, you can. Um, but, yeah, it was just kind of one of those things that, you know, it, you intuitively feel like you need a moment like that at that point in the film and this just seemed like a fun way to do it because as you say the whole the whole movie is kind of a, a game between two people and um the audience has to work out what's real and what's not and what's truth and what's fiction um so yeah it just seemed like a fun way uh to do that in quite a a play-like fashion it's, it's the kind of scene that i want to do in, like an anatomy of a scene breakdown of because it is such a it's a brilliant scene and the performances that the two have with each other it's like who's got the higher ground at that moment and just getting to see them work against each other. It's really, really brilliant stuff. So it's a lot to be proud of there. Oh, yeah. Thank you. 
Thank oh, you very much. Yeah, yeah. they didn't say well. Didn't say <laughs> with well. that in mind, with you know the darkness of this kind of story, what's the mood on set like, and how do you maintain whatever the mood is on set? I mean, the mood on set. We basically we this was a this was a, a mobile home that was built in a studio, so we had a very small crew, but we were all crammed together for the entire duration of the shoot in this one space. So everyone kind of went a little bit crazy, but in a good way. No no one wanted to kill each other by the end of it. We were all just kind of a bit delirious and delusional, which was kind of how you end up on most film sets, but this one especially because it was so contained and we were in in the dark, not seeing sunlight yeah, <laughs> for a, right. a very long time. But I guess in terms of like the actual mood between everyone, uh, our two leads, Brendan and Jordan, are unlike their characters in the film, they are peppy, effervescent uh very loud vivacious crazy people so you know in between takes it was all laughter and you mm. know uh chatter you yeah. know <clears throat> there was no real like you know method darkness going on everyone was kind of just having fun with it that's right in, there was select scenes as you can imagine where we were very much staying in the zone but because it is all one location continual time and holds a certain tone for the whole time you just couldn't stay yeah all the time um in that zone if if the actors had <clears throat> wanted that we definitely would have given it to them but um it just would have been it was it was tiring enough for them as as it was but yeah and i, and I think it's like as things progress without spoilers throughout the film um as things get a bit darker like we shot part of that real time and one location thing was that we essentially shot in order mm. in chronological order yeah um so that was good because we had rehearsed the first two thirds um so much it was kind of like it was pretty easy for us to slip into the first two thirds wasn't it and then it was really there's an appropriate level of as as things are darker we're all naturally a bit more tired and stuff like that so the the uh you know in between takes is a bit quiet it was just it, it funnily enough um, the chronological order that's not why we did it but it kind of ended up being good because as people are getting um, more tired on in real life so so are the characters yeah uh, <laughs> working really well yeah how long did you shoot for as well we uh, we shot initially for 21 days i want to say um and then we did a couple of days of pickups, pickups yeah as well it's a, it's interesting i watched uh recently rev paco but it was like it, there was this really interesting kind of vibe of trying to decide what uh adelaide filmmaker is like and it's like well you know if i if i had to think of what an adelaide filmmaker would be like paco and your films coming back to sound it's like well it kind of makes sense that sound and visual design of it is really what an Adelaide filmmaker is. Um, have you ever thought about what being a filmmaker in South Australia means? Yeah, I mean, I think what a lot of people talk about is, you know, our shooting locations in South Australia because mm. we have access to vastly different environments in a really short space of time. So I think that that's something that lots of South Australian filmmakers kind of pride themselves upon is like mm. beautiful shooting locations because one second you've got the beach, You've got the city, then you've got wine country, areas that can be made to look like jungle, areas that can be mm. made to look like desert. So I think that's something that a lot of South Australians, you know, 
pride themselves on in terms of filmmaking. Mm. Um, but yeah, in terms of sound, that's an interesting observation. They kind of like strange sister films in a way, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting. I mean, Paco is wonderful. I had such a, a joyous time watching it, and then uh, chatting with them afterwards as well. Like it's such a as you're saying, like the the visual language and style of Adelaide is it's so diverse you know you've got so many different things happening and and yet on the same hand like as you're saying you shot this in a set and you know you've got the sound stage and all this kind of stuff and then there are the moments where we get to see outside and that in itself is a, a visually stunning location too can you talk about making sure that the two married up and you know the outside and the inside looked the same I mean, we were really worried about that. Yeah. Like, in all honesty, we were like, oh, how do we make this work? Because we, we knew that we wanted to build a set for this film. Uh, it's like one of those things that, yes, it's a big cost to shoot in a studio for a low-budget film, and, yes, it's a big cost to create a set, but it actually saves us so much mm. time and money in the long run because you have total control and also uh, you don't have to compete against all the things that you normally compete against when you're out on a location in an environment where you have angry neighbours um, coming to tell everyone to get their cars off the street That's and right. you've got birds interrupting, you know, and real storms, if, as funny as it is, we didn't want a real storm during our shoot. So, yeah, in the long run we we knew that we, we wanted to shoot inside a, a set, um, but we did have this worry of, gosh, we have to actually make this believable and also, as we were talking about before, make it feel like the storm is really there, really outside and that we're not shooting in a sound studio. So mm-hmm. that was something we talked to Max Corkendale, our um, cinematographer, about a lot, how we can pepper in moments where an actor looks out a window or draws back a curtain um, or opens the door and we see physical rain and we see the exterior location to remind us that it's really there and it's really happening and then let sound do the rest of it when we're contained inside the house. But hilariously, the exterior location is is literally our set (laughs) that we transported to an exterior but erected as just a flat. So we could only shoot it from the front (laughs) Because if you moved left or right, you would see that there no- nothing the... existed behind it. Yeah. And technically, it's like moving in the breeze. Yeah. You had to strap it down. It was. It looked terrible from all other angles. But um, I mean, yeah, for for a film of this scale, that stuff, those were our visual effects. Like, you know what I mean? It, it was. It just we planned those as if they were big effect shots. In in reality, they weren't big. Yeah. Uh, but that that was just they were the big challenges on our scale, and um, those tended to be when we broke away from shooting in chronological order in that we, you know, we had a day where we were shooting towards the trailer home and we did have rain in the studio. Mm. So a little mini rig was built that again looked silly from all other angles and we just had to, we just storyboarded out certain sequences to know that we wanted to look out this angle so we just planned it for that and the exterior again was a night shoot that we just crammed a lot, a lot in. Yeah, and and I think it's also a testament to our production design team. Yeah. Because they, when the house feels so lived in and it feels so authentic and they've added all these details to make it feel like it's a real home, audiences aren't looking for 
the trick. You know <laughs> what I mean? They just they, they just believe it. So yeah, we had a great production design team that just really made it feel like it was really authentic so that you don't really question, does the inside match the outside? You just kind of absorb it. Yeah. The best, the best compliment we've had, which is, isn't an us thing. This is a, the team around us planning and just executing it really well is that we keep getting asked if it was shot in studio or on location. Yeah. So, cause you know, we didn't know cause we were there. So yeah. we're editing it and we're just going the whole time. Oh, hope, hope this works. Hope people buy this. Yeah. But you know, by the time you've got amazing sound design in there to tie it all together, mm. um, yeah, it just seamlessly worked. Mm. We'll say I did sit there near the climax. I'm like, Surely they didn't shoot this in an actual, like, out in an actual caravan park kind of thing. Like, surely not. But, yeah, that makes sense. Like, logically, I know I know how films are made and all this kind of stuff, but it's still, when you get absorbed in a plot and absorbed in a film, it's easy to just forget that the whole team has gone into making something. Um, so, yeah, I yeah. also had that experience. Um, oh, good. Yeah. It's interesting as well. I was talking to the Bird Eater guys earlier today, and they were talking about feeling like they're part of uh, an emerging group of Australian filmmakers and, you know, this, this group of Australian filmmakers who are recontextualizing what Australia is on screen and all this kind of stuff. Do you feel like that yourselves? And I know that you've had a relationship with having films screen over in America. So I'm curious if you can talk about being Australian filmmakers now and being part of a group and, and also having that kind of following, I guess, in America. I mean, it's been really cool to see and hear everything yeah. that's happening. I mean, we, cause we just had this film premiere at Tribeca and talking to people over there, everyone was talking about Australian films and, yeah. and specifically Australian genre films at the moment. Um, and we're really excited about it. So we were kind of like, Oh, that's really cool. Mm. And, and basically I think it's, it's, cool to see Australia branching out in terms of yeah. what, what it's making, the kind of content that it's producing um, because Australia is one of those countries that we have such an image uh, of being this gorgeous, you know, suntanned country where everyone's nice and, you know, this is kind of like beautiful image, which is largely true. Australians mm. are amazing people and, you know, we have amazing beaches and gorgeous locations, but we also have a kind of underbelly of, lots of hideous stuff that goes on in Australia and some of it is really unpleasant and some people are horrible and we have lots of isolated um, towns and areas where, you know, people aren't well looked after and mm. it breeds really interesting personalities and characters that you often don't see in Australian films because often it's the suntanned, gorgeous man with a ute, you know what I mean, who's got his dog in the back and all that kind of stuff, which is great. It is. But it is cool to see, you know, them branching out and, and showing different sides of, of Australia and really interesting sides of Australia that I think lean into horror and thriller territories really well, just because I think there's lots of cool untold stories out there that um, feel like that they belong to Australia with Australian actors and Australian locations mm. that are yet to be told. So it feels cool like that we're hearing all this positive stuff about specifically Australian genre films coming out at the moment. And I think even like physically executing a film has changed. I was going to say it's easier. It's really hard, but it, it's in the past. There's only been certain avenues to get your film made. Um, in Australia and they're amazing, but it, inevitably it's, it's hard to not to some capacity make them also want to be good tourist ads as, as well. Uh, that's not, so, uh, there are so many amazing Australian films, mm -hmm. but the advent of 
digital cameras. You know, five years ago, there were digital cameras, but we wouldn't have been able to do this film on this kind of digital camera. So I think there's a a wave of people who are just starting off, just kind of jump-starting their own stuff. And because they're not having to go through the traditional avenues straight out the gate, I, I think they're just potentially feeling a bit more freedom to just take a swing and mm. um, go for something that's unique for them rather than it having to kind of tick, boxes. tick, a, tick a lot of boxes. Yeah. And again, that's not so, so much amazing Australian um, content, amazing mm. Australian films, but I think that has to be connected mm. to why there's um, a bit of a, a bit of a new wave of, of unique stories, of unique coming. stories yeah. coming. It's just where in a super amazing time mm. um, as far as the technology goes that we can go and film stuff, cut stuff, mm. um, produce stuff ourselves. It's pretty, it's, it's a really exciting time. Mm. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.